book of 1 Corinthians. So if you were in Sunday school, at one point during the Sunday school, early on, I told you at some point I would be telling you what I told you. So I'm going to get started on that. We've been talking about the fact that God made us out of clay. We've mentioned the fact that clay has a tremendous potential, but only if it's processed. We also mentioned the fact that Revelation 4.11, you got part of it up on your wall up there. Uh, We were created to please God, and we please Him by glorifying Him. And we can only fully please Him and fully glorify Him as He intended if we will allow Him to sanctify us Okay? He does the saving. He does the sanctifying. You made yourselves available to salvation. Fortunately, that's a one-time decision that you can't back out of. <laughs> Good for us, because we got a free will, and who knows what we would do. But the sanctification is a process that you have to cooperate with. You have to embrace. You have to do your part by making yourself available to that process so that we can fill our potential through God's using our vessel of clay. We talked about the fact that uh, at the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to be judged not for our salvation, but for our works as to what sort they are. And those works that are done in our own strength will come out as wood, hay, and stubble. And that goes through a fire and comes out as ashes. If we uh, do works through Christ's strength, especially if we're partaking of his divine nature of charity, those works will come out as gold, silver, precious stones. Now, we mentioned that those works that do come out as gold, silver, and precious stones, you know, one of the rewards, the, one of the obvious rewards is the crowns. You've read about the different crowns that are given out. I, I don't doubt that the gold, silver, and precious stones that come through that fiery trial are the very materials used to make those crowns. Just to think, something to think about. Um, we talked about the fact that probably the mansion you have, probably the clothing you will wear in eternity, for certainly the uh, uh, authority or the opportunity, the privilege to rule and reign over cities out into the millennium and so forth, that's also going to be dependent on your acts of serving, sacrificing, suffering, and or sanctification. Those things are all tied together. So now I want to segue a little bit here before we get to 1 Corinthians. I know that globally... Uh, one of the things, I, I hope you don't listen to too much news. I can't tolerate much myself right these days. I listen to a, a little bit a few times a week. And I'll tell you, the thing that's back in the news full force is global climate change, whatever you want to call that. Um, and I find it very fascinating. I know a lot of you weren't alive in the late 70s. But if you had been, you would have read some of these articles. You know, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. You know, they act like this uh, global climate thing has just crept up on us or whatever. Forty-five years ago, I'm going to quote you two articles, one from the New York Times, which back then was not too bad, and then one for another uh, Newsweek magazine, which is also very decent and respected at the time. So this news, uh, this New York Times article said this, some experts believe that mankind is on the threshold of a new pattern of adverse global climate for which it is ill-prepared. This climatic change poses a threat to the people of the world. They were talking about this 45 years ago. Uh, The Newsweek article, which cites a National Academy of Sciences report, warned that climate change, quote, would force economic and social adjustments on a worldwide scale. Worse yet, 
climatologists are pessimistic that political leaders will take any positive action to compensate for the climatic change. It goes on to pretty much say that, hey, it's virtually past the point of no return. It's the political leaders haven't taken uh, any steps to change anything. So it's like, it's all over. The fascinating thing is that we, they were talking about global cooling back then, not global warming. So I don't know, why don't we ever hear about this? On, you know, how can you have global cooling past the point of no return, and 45 years later, it's global warming past the point of almost no return? Fortunately, you and I have a Bible that warns about the oppositions, the oppositions, the oppositions of science, falsely so-called. And that, there you have it right there. However, I bring this up for one reason. There is a climate of fear, not just in this country, but around the planet. And why don't we as believers take advantage of that climate of fear and tell something to people, share some good news called the gospel, because that is trustworthy, that is reliable, that is real. I bet you've got a lot of people you know that go to other churches that claim they're Christians, and they may be, but they probably never hear about this judgment seat of Christ. Why don't you share that with them? You're going to be judged for your works one day. You can share that with, uh, you can share the uh, uh, great white throne judgment with some of the lost people you know. You know, I, I take a lot of, uh, uh, when I'm reading my Bible, I find the gospel all over the place. I find the Great Commission all over the place. One of the places I find it is John 16, 8, where Jesus Christ, trying to comfort his disciples, said, listen, I have to go away. But before I go away, and if I don't go away, by the way, the, the Comforter can't come, the Holy Spirit. But when I go away, he will come. And when he has come, the Bible says in John 16, 8, he will, re he will reprove the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And uh, I find that as the great commission for you and I. Because if you're born again, that Holy Spirit is residing inside of each and one, every one of you. And your responsibility, my responsibility, is to yield our vocal cords, our tongue, our lips, our mouth. And you and I should be reproving the world of sin. Reminding people that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Reminding people that the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We should be reproving the world of righteousness, knowing that only the righteousness of Jesus Christ gets one into heaven, and all our righteousnesses are filthy rags. And by the way, we have the same problem that the nation of Israel had. The Bible says there in Romans 10, they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. You and I should be reproving the world of judgment by yielding our vocal cords to the Holy Spirit, telling saved people about the judgment seat of Christ and lost people about the great right throne judgment. Now you can reprove the world without speaking, but I'm advocating you speak as well as live an honorable, clean, holy life to the best of your ability, and your witness, your testimony will also reprove the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay? I guess it's time to get on with the message here. Uh, you guys are very easy just to start preaching to. So, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for every saint that's come back tonight, Lord. 
I pray you'd bless them. Speak to their hearts, Lord, and you minister to them as only you can. I know the words that are said here tonight, uh, the same words can minister to different hearts uh, the way you've planned things and orchestrated things. So, Lord, I pray you do. You help some people tonight. Draw them close to you, Lord. Help them to be sensitive of their opportunity to please you, to glorify you, and to get prepared for the judgment seat of Christ. Lord, we sure do love you, and we thank you for your long-suffering, your mercy, and your grace toward us, Lord. Help us to do things that show our appreciation by glorifying you and getting prepared to stand before you one day at the judgment seat of Christ. We ask all of this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 13. First Corinthians 13, verse 1, the Bible says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Does anyone in here have uh, that verse that says, instead of charity, it has the word love? No? Must all be using a King James Bible. You know, I don't know of another version that doesn't have the word love in it. I'm not, I haven't looked at all 300 plus versions. But uh, I hope maybe you already know why the word charity is not found in the Old Testament. Here's five letters. Here's five more letters. These letters are exactly the same. They're exactly in the same order. I add an A here and a Y. I have charity. Here I add an S and I have Christ. That is how similar those two things are. And according to our Bible, you cannot express charity the way God uses that word unless Christ is living in you. We don't associate Christ and charity per se as, as close as we should associate them because they don't sound alike. Christ, charity. They start differently, different sound. But that's how they are. As a matter of fact, almost every single time when you see charity expressed in our Bible, it's not just a perfect, peculiar type of love expressed by a Christian, but it's almost always expressed toward another Christian. Now, we've gotten sloppy with that word, and, you know, I mean, hey, I, you know, you talk about the charity of the Salvation Army and things like that, everybody knows what you're saying. That's not how God uses that word. I hope you realize we are a peculiar people. And we've got a peculiar uh, rebirth. Only uh, believers in the church age are born again. We've got a peculiar commission to go into the world and spread all the, the gospel and all of that. We've got a, a peculiar destination. Our particular destination is New Jerusalem. That's created just for church age saints. And why should we think it's strange that God's got a peculiar love for us? By the way, you want to do a nice word study, do a word study on the word peculiar. It's not strange and odd. Like we, God uses that word, it kind of means something that belongs to somebody. And we are a peculiar possession of his. Um, let's continue. Let's start over. First Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13.1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And though I have all faith that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. 
And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Paul goes on to list 16 aspects of charity, the 16th one being verse 8, which says, Charity never faileth. Wow. I believe that because the Bible said it, and I believe it. Charity never faileth. That means that you could take one of those gospel tracts out there in the foyer, hand one of those out to somebody tomorrow, and that person could take one look at that thing and not even open it up, just fold it in a ball and throw it right at your feet. And you'd probably say, well, that didn't go very well. Or did it or didn't it? I mean, did you do what you were told to do? Did you hand it to him? If you did it with charity, that's going to survive the fiery trial at the judgment seat of Christ. The results are not up to us. That's up to God. And all we're supposed to do is what he leads us to do. He very rarely would ask you, here's some stranger coming your way, lead him to the Lord. No, it's witness to him. It's hand him a gospel track, invite him to church, things like that. Allow God to do his part. Believe me, he will. I'm going to review these eight stages that the potter puts the clay through. But I want to remind you in a slightly different way of our responsibility. Revelation 4.11, we were created to please God, and we please him by glorifying him. John 15.8 said, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Paul reminded Titus that we needed to be careful to maintain good works lest we become unfruitful. And then we read during the worship service in 2 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 5 about the fact that one day we will be judged for our works. Right? So tie these together again. Created to please God by glorifying Him. Glorify Him by bearing fruit. Bear fruit by doing works. One day we'll be judged for those works. It would not be wrong to bring this full circle and say one day you and I will be judged as to whether or not we bought God pleasure. Just another way of looking at the same idea. Okay? And that's the way that Bible's written. So, let's review the eight stages that the potter puts the clay through. I, I've listed them up here for you. And I don't know, I probably didn't use all these exact terms when I was describing them. But the first thing the potter has to do, he has to dig the clay out of the ground. That's pictured here. I showed you how it's unusable in that current form. It has to go through a series of stages. So the potter uses a lot of water to soften and cleanse and decontaminate the clay. Potters call that the weathering process. And that's because uh, if, that, if that raw clay, that material that contains mostly clay, is submitted to the exact correct uh, proper weather conditions, a lot of rain and so forth, I'll tell you what, Noah's flood stirred a lot of things up. And a lot of those things that left to settle, everything has a specific gravity. And if they had a certain area with a lot of clay in that, it would all settle in its own pure vein. So we call it the weathering process. That's to soften and cleanse the clay. Once that clay is softened and cleansed, it needs to be homogenized. That's the wedging process. And you will remember that I used this sharp wire to help me cut the clay, and then I kneaded it on the wedging table. After the clay is wedged, it's rested. And through the resting, it allows bacteria to grow in the clay and allows it to get the strength it needs to withstand the next stage, which is the shaping process. 
once the clay is shaped and set aside to dry, it's put in the kiln, it's fired to about 1800 degrees, that makes it hard and waterproof, then the clay, put the protective coating on it, that's the glaze coating, that glaze coating turns to glass when it goes through the final firing, and it's fired at 2200 degrees, and that's when the glaze is now bonded to the surface of the vessel. I hope you realize these two pots are identical. I could wash the glaze off this one and it would look pretty much just like this one. These two pots are identical. Same exact glaze on both of them. That's how much the glaze changes in the firing. Now bonded to the vessel. Okay, let's go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. If you're rightly divide, dividing the word of truth, you have to be careful in some of these non-Pauline epistles. I would tell you that this particular part of 2 Peter applies 100% directly to the church-age believer. And you get that from verse 1, where it says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained, with the letter O, obtained like precious faith. That's exactly how you and I got saved. We obtained it. The word obtained with an O is much different than attained with an A. When you attain something with the letter A, that's you earning it over a period of time through effort. Obtaining it is getting a free gift. You just got it. It was given to you. Verse 4, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Before we go on, I want you to pay particular attention to the fact that you and I are going to, Peter's going to list these eight divine characteristics of God that you and I can partake of, but don't forget about verse 4 that says, according to these exceeding great and precious promises, I want to make sure you know what he's talking about. What is an exceeding great and precious promise to you? I hope Romans 8.28 is an exceeding great and precious promise to you. I hope I don't have to quote it, because I'm not going to. I hope 1 John 5.13, I mentioned that one this morning. I hope that's an exceeding great and precious promise to you. How about some, some from the book of Philippians? How about um, Philippians 1.6? Being confident of this very thing. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Not only is that an exceeding great and precious promise, it is a specific reference to the judgment seat of Christ. When you read in your Bible the day of Jesus Christ, the day of Jesus, the day, anything with the day of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of that, that refers to that day, that period of time that includes like the rapture, the judgment seat of Christ, and the tribulation. That's that day. That's different from the day of the Lord, which is the second advent, which is different from the day of God, which is uh, the great white throne judgment. And those are tricky because Jesus Christ... God, Lord, those are all, they're all for the same person. But the day of those things is different. Anyway, I'm getting off the point again. Okay, verse 5, and besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you, that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, I hope that reminds you of a verse that we read this morning, because it reminds me of Revelation 3, I think it's verse 18, when he talks about being naked and ashamed. And let me say it again. God does not want any of us to stand before him one day at the judgment seat of Christ being naked or ashamed. And he doesn't want us to be, spend the days of our salvation being barren or unfruitful. That's why those things remind me of each other. Now, I didn't ask you to pay attention in Sunday school to this particular phrase, but when Paul visited uh, that town of Miletus, and he told the Ephesus leaders that he summoned down there, he said, I'm going to commend you to God and to the word of his grace. And I mention that, I bring that back up, because every one of these eight stages is wholly dependent on two things, the same two things, all eight stages. And it's the word of his grace. It's God's words and God's grace. And what you and I need to do is come at these words, spend time in these words while we're partaking of God's grace. And how do we get his grace? God resists the proud, gives his grace to the humble. So we need to humble our hearts while we spend time in the words. And that is how you partake or cooperate or embrace the sanctification process every one of those eight stages. Now, Peter said that we need to add to our faith virtue. Well, I bet most of you realize that when you got saved, the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. I truly believe, I've got verses to back it up, that this building block of faith is a gift you've been given to salvation. It's not even our faith. God gives us the faith to believe in him. And if you cross-reference that with uh, Galatians 2.20, it says the same thing. The life that I now live in the faith, I live by the faith of the Son of the God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's his faith. So you think, well, I'm going to take that building block of faith I've been given, and I'm just going to get out there and partake of God's divine nature of virtue, and then I'm going to add to that knowledge, and I'm on, my, I'm on the races. I'm up there. I'm building no, that's not, that is not going to build a very stable structure when you get that eight stories tall. What you and I need to do is we need to take that building block of faith we've been given, and we don't need to just abide in faith. We need to abound in faith. How do we do that? I told you the words are, the answers are in the Bible. If we can abound in God's faith, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God, then we can park of, partake of God's divine nature of virtue like that. And then if we're ever abounding in faith by reading our Bibles, then we can partake of his and abound in God's divine nature of virtue and then partake of his divine nature of knowledge. That is the way to build, okay? So, it begs the question. This is how difficult and tricky and complicated this is. Are you reading your Bible? And it's not enough just to read it. Do you believe it? The Bible says that the words of God effectually work in those that believe them. Turn to Proverbs chapter 22. You know, I took a little walk in the parking lot about five minutes to six. You know what I saw out there? A bunch of naked cars. Naked cars. Cars that weren't clothed because they didn't have one of these on them. 
What's the matter with you guys? Do you believe the words of God are powerful? You got a bunch of gospel tracts in there. Are, do you have empty glove boxes and empty purses and wallets? Do you have tracks in them? Or are they empty? Are they naked? Proverbs chapter 22, verse 20 says, Have not I written to thee excellent things and counsels and knowledge, that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee? God's saying, hey, try out these words as your counselors. Allow them to help you make the decisions you make throughout your day. Find out how powerful, how reliable, how trustworthy they are. And then when I send people across your path, use these very words to engage them. That's what that verse is talking about. You know, we mentioned the doctrine of the rapture this morning. Paul said it's going to happen very quickly. He said, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. The very next verse says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. You see, you could do a great job, a thorough job, of explaining the rapture to a saved or lost person. Convincing maybe a lost person he doesn't want to go through that terrible tribulation, he wants to go up in that rapture. You know, or you could just show God, show that person the words of God or quote them to him. We have to understand people these words were written for our benefit. And these words contain principles, and those principles are for our advantage. If we know what they are, we can take advantage of them. We can comfort one another with those same principles if we believe them. I, I will tell you this, even if you don't believe those words, these words in our King James Bible are so powerful that they will work in you, they will work on you, and they will work through you but they will effectually, more effectually work in you, on you, and through you if you believe them. I'm leaving, I'm going to leave it with Pastor Caleb here. I'm going to leave him because I know he's the guy that, you know, keeps all the details together for your senior pastor. I'm going to give him Steve Schlechty's prayer card. And I, I know I was at the last church I was at, man, they had him. And I could tell before I got up to preach because half the cars had magnets on them up there. He's a dear brother, and when he leaves, you'll all have magnets on your car, whether you want one or not. I, you say, brother, oh, that's so big and in your face and all that. Okay. Start small. <laughs> Get yourself a little magnet that's got the pure words of God on it. I mean, I see a couple Trump stickers on there, on the cars. I saw a couple uh, sports-type stickers, you know, I bike or whatever, I don't know. But listen... Those are the words of God, and they are convicting, comforting, correcting, challenging. There's on and on. What can you say about those words? They work 24-7, just like those gospel tracks. Those are a rolling billboard, whether your vehicle's rolling or not. <laughs> I, saw a, I saw this exact sticker on a car in Walmart years ago. I mean, I was parked right next to it, looking right at it when I walked by it. But so what? I saw it. It's the words of God. I, I, charity never faileth. If you put it on there because you love the Lord and you just want to do something to please Him, you don't really care, you know, maybe it'll help you be a better driver too. I, you know, the excuses I hear, oh yeah, but you know, I, I, you know, I just drive a little over the speed limit once in a while. I don't want people to know I'm a Christian. 
Wow, that's a great statement. You don't want people to know you're a Christian. Okay, well, enough said. If we're going to park up, turn to Psalm. Let's, let's bring this to the clay here. Turn to Psalm 69. We're going to really move fast from this point forward. Hallelujah. Yeah, I heard, I heard that hallelujah. Um, Psalm 69. Listen, I, I, I figured all you churches up here are the same. I call this the Adirondack churches. I know you're probably nowhere near the Adirondacks. But to me, you are, because I'm from Tennessee. Uh, but I know I was at one of those churches, and they said they don't go by the clock. They go by the calendar. So I figured you guys must be the same way. So put your clocks away. Just look at your calendar. Psalm 69. What, what or what does this have to do with the clay? Uh, Psalm 69, we'll just read the first three verses, if I ever find it. Psalm 69, verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters are coming unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. That's a picture or a type, however you want to say it. Someone, A lost person crying out for salvation. Now, does God answer him in the next verse, the next chapter, later on? No. Go back to Psalm 40. God wrote the Bible, not you or I. That's why it's put together this way. Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. You get the picture? The literal, the earthly potter digs the literal clay out of the literal darkness of the literal ground. It's a picture of faith. A picture of saving faith. He brought me up off also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. When you and I got saved, God brought us out of the darkness and captivity of Satan's kingdom. And like I said this morning, I hope this is not what he's looking at when he looks down at the pew here in this room this evening. It's incumbent that you and I read our Bibles because faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And it's a whole lot more effective if we believe those words. If we're going to partake of God's divine nature of virtue, you and I need our hard, contaminated hearts to be softened and cleansed. And just like the potter uses all that water, God uses the washing of the water by the word of God. That's what Christ, or Paul reminded the believers at Ephesus that Christ loved the church, that's us, the body believers, uh, gave his life for it, that they might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word of God. Jesus Christ said himself, Now are ye clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. He also said, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. It says in Psalm 119, verse 9, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Now what happens when the clay is softened and cleansed. Some of these contaminants, these big things like branches and stones, those lead a considerable void in your hard, contaminated heart. God wants to replace that emptiness, that vacuum, with something pure and clean. You tell me something cleaner and purer on planet Earth. It's the words of God are pure, and they're clean, and they're holy. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What is the Bible telling us? It's not enough just to read God's words. You and I need to be 
memorizing God's words. And I bet all you young people are memorizing scripture in your Sunday school classes. You need to let your parents help you with those memory verses so you can help them memorize some scripture too, okay? Good idea? And help your grandparents do the same thing. I don't care how young or old you are, we need to be memorizing scripture. You say, I don't need that. Oh, yeah, you do. You may don't know you need it, but you do. You need those principles in your life to help you. They're for your benefit. You should want to know them, and so you can tell others about them as well. Those words will not only get you clean, they will help you to stay clean. Amen. If we're going to partake of God's divine nature of knowledge, we too are going to go through a wedging process as we study the words of God. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, I hope that triggers something, rightly dividing the word of truth, the word of God. Listen. When you study God's words, and what does the Bible liken these words to? The Bible says the word of God is quick. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of your heart. Just like the potter uses this sharp wire to help him in the wedging process, God uses the sharp two-edged sword of the Spirit to help wedge out some of those false doctrine or false beliefs you may be picked up. That's just like having an air pocket inside of a vessel of clay. Those things need to be removed and dealt with. It's by studying, comparing line upon line, precept upon precept, that uh, God begins to wedge those things out of our false belief system. If you and I are going to partake of God's today nature of temperance, it's about us resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalmist said, be still and know that I am God. Paul told the church at Thessalonica that they needed to study to be quiet. I'll tell you what, most potters that earn their living making pottery don't even know about this stage. Because they buy their clay just like I did for over 30 years. They bought it, and it comes just like this. It's already been in a bag for at least two weeks, maybe two or three months. It's already been rested. But this is the most overlooked part of the sanctification process because sometimes believers get so busy doing good things, they have no time to be quiet with the Lord. And if you're a married gentleman and you have a very submissive wife, which is a real gift from God, do not take advantage of that submissiveness and wear your spouse out. Because as the spiritual leader in your home, your responsibility is to make sure your spouse has a time to be quiet. Not a time to be exhausted and pass out on the bed because she's been running errands for you all day. But a time to have some energy and some quiet. You cannot force her to use that as a quiet time. But hopefully by, you're leading by example and you're having a quiet time yourself. And you need to provide her with the energy and the time to have that quiet time. That's the man's responsibility. If you want to do a good study, study the word stand still or stand thou still. Great study. If we're going to partake of God's divine nature of patience, you and I are supposed to be thankful when we're being stretched on the wheel of life as God is shaping us. I told you that that potter's wheel is not unlike uh, the world going round and round and round and day after day, night after night. 
God is using not only his words, but he's using the circumstances in our lives to shape us and mold us and eventually conform us to the image of his dear son. Let me make one more point about resting. I, gotta, I just want to drill this home. It's so important. I want to try to describe this very large painting to you. It's a farmer kneeling down in his field, and he's praying before he starts working in the morning. I, you know it's morning because the sun's coming up on the horizon, and you can see dew still on the field in the background. That's the whole painting, except the artist filled in the background up above with these wispy clouds. Now, if you looked at those wispy clouds for a little bit, you realize that he had subtly, very subtly, painted in the shapes of two angels. One of those angels was actually dropping seed in the field, and the other angel was, looked like he was maybe repairing some equipment to get it ready to take out into the field. I know what the artist was trying to convey. He's trying to say, look it, if you and I would spend a little time before we start our busy day and get quiet with the Lord, either through reading or praying, and hopefully both of those things, then God will actually send his angels ahead of us to begin to do that work which we might be temporarily neglecting. And that's a spiritual principle. I got it down here. The entrance of thy words giveth light. You see, God, when you spend time in those words in the morning, those words are going to shed light on the decisions that we have to make throughout our day. And if we make better decisions, our day is going to go better for us. So take the time. You know, sometimes you have so much to do, it, it's worthwhile to take the time to allow God to prepare you to do those things instead of trying to rush off and try and do them in your own strength. So if we're going to partake of God's divine nature of patience, it's about us being thankful when we go through some very, uh, maybe, substantial circumstances. James put it this way. He said, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Now, is that your normal response when you get the bad report from the doctor or your financial advisor calls you up and just told you that the stock market crashed and your 401k is gone? Or where? Oh, praise the Lord? Probably not. Well, God wants us to be thankful in all those things. During his uh, ministry, the Apostle Paul said, I glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, patience experience, Experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. That word keeps cropping up, doesn't it? Uh, maybe you've heard, raise your hand, of Corey Tenboom. Okay, at least half of you. Um, Holocaust survivor. She found herself uh, in World War II when Adolf Hitler was rounding up Jews and those that had aided the Jews of which she was one. She was in this one particular concentration camp with her sister, Betsy. And the first night in that particular concentration camp, Corey was leading the two of them in uh, nightly devotions. And Corey thanked the Lord for the, uh, the roof over their heads, thanked the Lord for the meal they were given that day, also thanked the Lord for the adequate clothing they had, and probably a few other things. Anyway, when she finished, her sister, Betsy, uh, thanked her for leading the two of them in the devotions. But then she just kind of scolded Corey a little bit. She said, Corey, I noticed that you didn't thank the Lord for the, the fleas in here. <laughs> Corey kind of looks at Bessie and said, Corey, 
you and I have both been scratching and itching all over ever since we got here. Why should I thank the Lord for the fleas in here? Well, her sister reminded her of that verse in Thessalonians that says, in everything give thanks. So Corey, being the believer that she was, she said, yeah, I'm sorry, Lord. Thank you for the fleas. Some 30 years go by. Corey is writing one of several books that she wrote uh, about the different concentration camps she was in over a period of years. Thinking back on that first one, she was in with her sister, Betsy. By the way, Betsy did not survive that concentration camp. But besides that feature, there was one other fact. There was something she couldn't really put her finger on, but for some reason, Corey recognized that particular concentration camp was much different than all of the others in that in that particular camp with the fleas, she had a tremendous freedom to read her Bible all hours of day or night, never interrupted. She had a tremendous freedom to share her faith with other prisoners of war and sometimes even could talk to some of the guards. Uh, she, after talking with some other survivors from that same uh, imprisoned camp, she uh, come to find out that those guards had actually made a pact amongst themselves. And that pact was that under no circumstances unless an absolute uh, riot broke out, would they enter those barracks because they didn't want to subject themselves to that flea infestation. So the Lord showed Corey, granted it was like 30 years after the fact, why she should be thankful for the fleas in that place. My question to you, Saint, is are you thankful for the fleas in your life? Because we all have them, and they can be people or circumstances, things that just kind of rub you the wrong way, things that are inconvenient, uncomfortable, things that annoy you. <laughs> They're not there by accident. That's what we need to realize. God's got those fleas in your life for a reason, and he may not show you exactly what that reason is. He might show you 30 years down the road, or he may not show you till he calls you home to glory one day. I'm not sure, but you and I are supposed to be thankful for those fleas. The Apostle Paul got to the point in his life where he said, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses. He said, I can take pleasure in all those things for Christ's sake, because when I am weak, then I am strong. Hmm. Saint, I'm encouraging you. The Bible tells us, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Be sensitive to those reasons God may have you going through a difficult trying circumstances. Count it all joy. If we're going to partake of God's divine nature of godliness, you and I are going to go through a fiery trial, a fiery trial of the flesh. And as we're going through that fiery trial, God expects us to be devoted to him. He's supposed, he expects us to be content and worshipful. And maybe it would help us when we're going through that trial of the flesh. Well, that really helped. <laughs> you should see my notes. That's why I have them in plastic. I've got to wipe them off before every sermon. Uh, when we're going through a fiery trial of the flesh, uh, maybe some of these exceeding great and precious promises would help us. 
By the way, the Bible says the finding pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord trieth the hearts. And that's what's represented by what we call the low firing here. God's going to put a temptation in your path, and what he wants you to do is, let me put it this way, he doesn't really want you to resist that temptation to do wrong. He wants you to call out to him and ask him to help you resist that temptation to do wrong. And if you know the exceeding great and precious promises, like let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, that'll help you resist it. And then when you do resist it, you can recognize, hey, it's not me, it's God that did it through me. Amen. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of power may be of God, not of us. It goes right back to that verse. How about this exceeding great and precious promise? I'm going to give you one verse of Scripture there's five exceeding great and precious promises in this one verse. I think it's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way for you to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. That will get you through some trying times. That one single verse. That's an exceeding great and precious promise. Why don't you call out to God and help ask him? And there's sins of omission and there's sins of commission. Sometimes we're tempted to do the wrong thing, and then sometimes we're tempted not to do the right thing. And you've got those exceeding great and precious promises to give you the strength to do the right choice in any of those circumstances. If we're going to partake of God's divine nature of brotherly kindness, turn to Isaiah, Isaiah 61. We're going to take of his divine nature, brotherly kindness. We have to be yielded to God's will and not focus on our own will. We need to put, just like the potter puts on a protective coating on that vessel in stage seven, God wants to put a protective coating on us, and it is pictured as our righteousness. Job said, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. In the book of Revelation, it talks about the fine white linen of the saints being their righteousness. If you're familiar with the whole armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, one of those protective coverings happens to cover the heart. It's called the breastplate of righteousness. Here in Isaiah 61, look in verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. If we're going to partake of God's divine nature of charity... I told you that the vessel, when it goes through the final firing, the glaze is now bonded to the vessel. And charity is what bonds this process together. Matter of fact, Paul, in one of his epistles, he said, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 4, look down in verse 8. He says, and above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Skip down to verse 12. Beloved, 
Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Verse 14, if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Skip down to 16. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Now, one more verse, 1 Peter 3.17, should be on the previous page. 1 Peter 3.17, For it is better if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Just in this one small epistle, three times in this epistle, three separate verses mention well-doing, and every time it's connected with the will of God. You want to know the will of God in your life? It's not just to believe your King James Bible, but it's to obey it by getting out there and doing something with it. And that, I, I, you know, I, I hope that's not the case in this church. I don't think it is. But unfortunately, there's some Bible-believing works that are so focused on the King James Bible, and they just know it, and they just study it to pieces, and get every deep doctrine they can and all that stuff. And what are they doing? What are you doing with it? I know people that are using an NIV and they're out there beating the bushes trying to serve God. And I think they're going to get some rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and they're using the wrong Bible. So they have no much, they don't have the potential that you all have. But I hope you all are doing, you're getting out there and doing some well-doing. What did Nike say? Just do it. <laughs> and that's all throughout the Bible. You read the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, it's all about doing it, doing it, doing it. They kept the words of God, but they wanted to do it. Josiah that was the big difference with Josiah. He made a covenant with God not only to keep the words, but to perform the doing of them. Let's make this really clear. This is a trial of the flesh. Let's say you're tempted to do something wrong, and you do the something wrong, and then you suffer for it, and you say, okay, I deserved it. All right? This is very different. You may get to the point in your life where God wants you to partake of his divine nature of charity, he's going to allow you to do something good and then suffer for doing good. And that is a hard one to take. But if you recognize it, it makes all the difference in the world. I mean, you get criticized, you get someone comes down on you for doing something good. What's that all about? Hey, oh yeah, God's allowing me to partake of his divine nature of charity by suffering for well-doing. That's why this is a hotter, higher temperature firing. This is the sanctification process. It is an eight-stage process. And I, I get this all the time. Oh, it's just so much. I can't do all that. <laughs> How about if we simplify it into two steps? From here up, step one. You and I need to absorb God's words. And I'm, this isn't a Chinese menu. You don't pick two from column A up here or whatever. God said, hey, I want you to absorb my words, but I want you to do it all four of these ways. He wants you to just read that Bible casually. And I mean casually. Those words are so supernaturally powerful that even if you are daydreaming, which I don't recommend, but even if you are, those words are probably still to some extent nourishing your spirit. That's how powerful they are. You need to read that Bible casually. You need to read every word of it. And then you need to be memorizing Scripture. You need to be studying it. 
and then you need to be meditating on those scriptures. That was Josiah, uh, not J Joshua's key to success. This book of the law shall not depart from out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate in it there day and night. And by the way, to observe the doing of it. <laughs> Listen, once you have absorbed God's words, then you get out there and be a doer of the word. So let's start at the top. You and I, the salvation starts the whole process by faith. Then we had to add to that faith by reading the word of God, right? We partake of his divine nature of virtue by allowing the washing of the water of the word to soften and cleanse our heart-contaminated heart. We partake of his divine nature of knowledge by allowing the sharp two-edged sword of the spirit to wedge them in those false doctrine and maybe just lies that we believed before we got into a real Bible or whatever. We rest in the word, and that's a picture of us saturating every fiber of our body, soul, and spirit to gain the strength that we need to withstand the shaping process. Then when we're on the wheel of life, we can partake of God's divine nature of patience as he's stretching us and pushing us and pulling us. And we do it with the right attitude, the attitude of thankfulness, just praising God. We partake of his divine nature of, brother, uh, of, pay, of godliness by resisting the fiery trial of the flesh, by trusting in the Lord to help us resist that and make the right decision, right? What does it do? It hardens our character so that we can better in the future resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. We put on our protective coating by esteeming others more than ourselves, by bearing one another's burdens, but not in our own strength, in his strength, because we're partaking of his divine nature of brotherly kindness. And then this whole process is bonded together as we partake of his divine nature of charity, serving the Lord with the pure motive of charity. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. I want to tie this whole three messages together. Genesis 2, verse 7, the Bible says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. A picture of the three-part being of a human being. The three parts of a human being, body, spirit, and soul. God's a three-part entity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so are we. I want to talk to you about the three types of Christians in this room tonight. I told you my personal testimony. Made a profession of salvation 30 years before I surrendered. I hope that's nobody's testimony in here. That's a terrible thing for me to have to admit. 30 years to surrender. Why did I surrender? Well, the Lord put me through a tremendous, serious physical affliction and he combined that serious affliction with just a childlike understanding about the judgment seat of Christ. And those, things, those two things convicted me to the point where I just surrendered to God and said, Lord, like the Apostle Paul, I didn't use his words, but like him, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And that's probably the mantra every one of us should have when we wake up every morning. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Eight one-stillable words. 
If you have crossed this line, praise the Lord, try to stay over there because it's easy to cross right back to here anytime you want. If you're going to cross this next line, serving the Lord with a pure motive of charity, this is the blueprint up here. It is. This is what you have to do. I encourage you afterwards, If uh, this might be a good thing for you to have a picture of so you can just refer to it and just to remind yourself, am I doing these things? Because if you expect to partake of God's divine nature of patience and you haven't been quiet with the Lord, that's not going to happen. I mean, I hope you know intuitively that the potter can't skip any one of these stages. Not only can he skip them, he can't perform them haphazardly. They have to be done correctly and in order. And this is no different. These have to be done correctly and in order. The book of Revelation talks about those that are called, those that are chosen, and those that are faithful. I mentioned in passing this Romans 12.2, God has three directive wills, his good will, his acceptable will, and his perfect will. We mentioned Gideon's army, how he started out with 32,000 and ended up with 300. We read this morning during the worship service about one of the about the works that go through that fiery trial at the judgment seat of Christ, those that go through while we're partaking of God's divine nature of charity will come through as precious stones, silver, and gold. I encourage you to read that very transparent parable in Luke chapter 19, the parable of the pounds, the transparent parable about the rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, at least one of those rewards. I told you that the Clay is the single most abundant solid material on planet Earth. And potters categorize all clays into one of three categories. Earthenware, stoneware, or porcelain. Earthenware is by far the most plentiful. Therefore, it's the least expensive. It's also fired to the lowest temperature. And it absorbs the most water when it is fired to its maximum temperature. Stoneware clay is what I use and most studio potters use. It's more expensive because it's rarer. It goes to a higher temperature, absorbs very little water, and uh, I guess it's more expensive because it's rarer. And then the finest, purest, whitest, smoothest clay is known as porcelain, also known as china. All china is porcelain. It's the whitest, smoothest, rarest clay it's fired to the highest temperature, and of course, it's the most expensive. It has a very unique quality. Fine porcelain, when it's made by a master potter who can make that vessel nice and thin, because porcelain, when it's very thin, it's, tra it's translucent, meaning that light shines through it. No other clay can do that. Apostle Paul used a couple of these words, so he talked about surviving and striving. And I'll tell you what the mantra is in the Laodicean churches. It's eat, drink, and be merry. I'm saved. I'm going to be in heaven one day. You know, and as a believer, you and I have liberty. But the Bible says use not that liberty for an occasion to the flesh. But use that for God's purpose and God's glory. So what I'm saying is it's not just enough to survive. Because God doesn't want you over here. He doesn't want you to stay over here. He wants you to get over there in column three. And he'll help you get over there if you just yield yourself and make yourself available to him. What I suggest is if you would just strive a little bit, 
before you know it, you're going to vault over here and you're going to thrive as a Christian. When I say strive, I, I really believe when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to probably have all these excuses for why we didn't do some of the things we should have done. And uh, those excuses are going to boil down really to that one thing I've already mentioned, that we didn't make ourselves available. And the reason our excuses are going to boil down to two things. We didn't make ourselves available for God's purposes because, number one, it was uncomfortable, and number two, it was inconvenient. Now, I don't know about you, but uncomfortable and inconvenient, those are really weak excuses. And really, that's the only excuses we're probably going to have. That's what they're really going to be. And what I'm telling you is God will do the heavy lifting, so why don't you and I allow him, by faith, to help us step outside of that little comfort zone that we stay in. And just stick one of your little toes outside of that comfort zone. And allow yourself to be slightly inconvenienced and slightly uncomfortable. And that might translate into gold, silver, and precious stones at the judgment seat of Christ. The Apostle Paul said, my brethren, he said, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. He said, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Apostle Paul likened the Christian life to a race. He said, I know I'm in that race, and if you're born again, you're in your own race. It's custom-made race for you, and that's like a marathon that encompasses an obstacle course. And I will tell you this, your race began the second that, gun, that starter's gun went off, the very second you got saved. And you don't cross that finish line, that rope or whatever it is, until God pulls that very last breath out of your body. That's your race. It's the whole, your whole life. And it's custom made for you, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one in that race with you. Apostle Paul said, by God's grace, I'm going to finish that race. And if he helps me by his will, I am going to seek for the prize. Now, column three is just not for pastors and evangelists and Sunday school teachers. It's for every single child of God, every one of us. God wants us to serve him with a pure motive of charity. He's just asking us to be faithful. Not what we call successful, just faithful. He wants us to allow him to perform his perfect will through us just like Gideon's 300 did. He wants our works to go through that spiritual fire and come out as gold. He wants us to rule and reign over cities out into the millennium and eternity. He wants us to be like that fine piece of porcelain, not only translucent, but the master potter can see his reflection on the surface of that vehicle, that vessel. He wants us to thrive during the days of our salvation. He wants to give us those prizes, those earned inheritance, at the judgment seat of Christ, because that pleases him. So it's just a question if you're going to embrace and cooperate with that process. I would tell you this. Why don't you just try to remember these two scriptures. We read tonight how uh, Peter said, if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we read this morning, or maybe, no, we read it this evening too, and when Paul wrote about charity, he said, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, if I do it without charity, it profiteth me nothing. 
Does this take some effort? Yeah. Does it take a whole lot of effort? No. This could be 15, 20 minutes a day. I hope it's more than that, but you could do it in 15, 20 minutes a day. Start small and, and get on with it. You know, there are costs that you pay with any course of action. Let me just quote this last thing, and I'll close. John F. Kennedy, back in the 60s, this country came very close to a nuclear war. They called it the Bay of Pigs. Russia wanted to put missiles in Cuba, and Cuba is just, a, I think it's 60 miles or so off the Florida coast. And Kennedy said, no, we're not going to have that. And he stood up and did what was right. And he challenged them and said, no, it's not going to happen. And everyone was worried by him standing up to the Russians whether or not that might trigger a nuclear war. And everybody, the whole world was concerned about that. And John F. Kennedy said in a national address right afterwards, fortunately the Russians backed down, and he said this, he said, there are risks and costs to any program of action. And that's what this is, a program of action. But they are far less than the long range risks and costs of comfortable in action. Get it? Not doing this is comfortable in action. And you're going to regret that for eternity. So here's the program of action. It's up to you, Saint. Heavenly Father, I pray that the saints in this room, Lord, would take advantage of what you've shown them tonight. Lord, help them. I know they love you. Show them how they can perform the doing of it by allowing you to sanctify them, to bring you the maximum pleasure that you created them to bring you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.